I love this exchange, if I can just read a little bit. So Anton's mother is working for Joan Kennedy and is a friend of hers. So Anton and his mother, um, they're talking about how the Boston Herald had run a front page story suggesting that Joan Kennedy had undergone a facelift. Which they did. (laughs) They couldn't just say I looked nice, not and boost their circulation, I guess. It's depressing. It feels like they hate us sometimes. She took a deep breath and pursed her lips. Don't you think that strong feelings, I mean, really passionate ones for public figures, are fake, I said? It was something I'd been thinking about. What do you mean, Joan said. It's fake when you love them, because if you've never met them, what are you loving? A role they played in a movie or on stage. And when you loathe a public figure, it's the same. Every great man in history was hated by someone, and most villains inspired devotion. Hitler had women who gave up their lives for him. And then Jack and Bobby had men hating them so much they killed them, she said. Exactly, I said. My mother shot me a disapproving look about where I'd steered the conversation. This is Tom Barbash. This is Laura Fraser. This is Susie Gerhard. We're here in the Grotto Pod. We're here to talk about Tom's new book, The Dakota Winters, which has been getting crazy rave reviews. Thank you for having me on the show. going to start, Tom. Um, I loved your latest book, but I want to just let people know a little bit about what else you've done. So I've known you for a bunch of years, and correct me if I'm wrong, but was your first book the Cantor Fitzgerald book? No, after... it was, it was a, the novel, The Last it was Good Chance. The Last Good yeah. Chance. They came out like on the same year. My, like two, two or three months before. Yeah. yeah. I loved The Last Good Chance. It was one of those sort of great American novels about... Um, a small town. It kind of reminds me of something that maybe like Richard Russo would write. Um, and you were a reporter in a small town, right? At yeah. a certain point, and, a journalist. And, and a lot of what that book, thank you for the, the kind words about it, but a lot of what that book was about was uh, my experience of being a New York City kid who then went four and a half hours north and west to upstate New York and encountered a completely different world. You know, it's a, it was sort of a dying industrial town but a small town and so different. I grew up on the 17th floor of an apartment building between Columbus and Central Park West. And now I was living on East 5th Street above Conzone's Barbershop. You know, this <laughs> t- and I knew the mayor and the fire chief. And and I had a lot of affection for this town, but I also you know, was able to learn a lot about its problems. And I, I thought there were so many things that were coming clear to me that were fascinating to me. And I, and I thought of the, the person I used to be with n- no interest or knowledge. I mean, I guess I had some interest about upstate New York, but no, no concept of what it was like to live in that kind of, in a, in a small town, in a place like what was Oswego, New York. I renamed it Lakeland. It was beautiful, beautiful book. So then the, the Cantor Fitzgerald book, On Top of the World, that you wrote about the employees at Cantor Fitzgerald who perished in in 9-11, right? Yeah, and that, I was a college classmate of Howard Lutnick, who was the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, and uh, we were on vacation. I was with my wife in Spain, actually, when the towers fell, and then we got on the phones and called New York, and I learned that Howard's brother, who I'd known since college, Mm. died, and my good friend Doug Gardner, who I knew since sixth grade, had died, and two other close friends, and a lot of people had lived. And within the next few days, uh, Howard asked me to come into New York, and and the idea was we might write a book together, but he was so wrapped up in it that I ended up sort of 
I, I ended up being the first person that so many of those people that that was the, the, the that was where everything happened. They lost, uh, I think a third of the people that died in nine 11, 700 wow. people. And they told their stories to me. And then I was with them when, uh, we watched them rebuild the company and also the whole media onslaught. It was a very strange story. There were some really inspiring things, some sad things, some fights between family members. It was in the same, the way that death makes everything come out in good ways and bad ways. It was, it's all in that book. So, and, uh, it was an intense experience. So 16 hour days of writing, I was doing the research and writing at the same time. Um, cause we had a tight deadline, but that was, that was an incredible experience. A really different kind of New York story. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, Stay Up With Me, that was your first collection of stories, yes, right? I yes. loved those. Some of those first stories... First and only, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. some of those really stick with me. I, for some reason, particularly remember the story, Somebody's Son, about some guy who's trying to swindle an elderly couple out of their house, and he steals little things when he visits, and they know it all the time. I mean... He's trying to get caught as part of it. Yeah, he is trying to mm-hmm. swindle things, but he also feels... Guilty. He He's trying guilty. to get an older couple um, to sell their place for a lot less money than he knows it's worth. And this was based on a story that I read um, in the Adirondacks that there were these guys and they were ingratiating themselves in the community and they were dressing like locals. And then they were getting these people to sell their places for a lot less. And I imagine someone who sort of, in a way, wanted to get caught. And um, that was, and Laura, though, you know, when you said a lot of them stick in your head, it's, it's it, truth be told, Laura, you read a lot of these in draft form. So, and Laura's a, you know, wonderful reader. So, well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. And so then we, then we make it to the Dakota winters, which is not about the polar vortex in the Midwest, but it's about a family named winters, particularly the father and son who live in the, the storied Dakota apartment building in New York, not long, not, not far from where you grew up. Um, and a lot of the book or some of the book at least surrounds, uh, one of the celebrity tenants of the Dakota, John Lennon. And I'm, I think that for people who are around our age, we don't have to be specific about that. Um, John Lennon being shot was one of those events that I think for people who are a little older than us, it was like Kennedy being shot. Absolutely. And it was interesting to me also that you had Joan Kennedy and Teddy Kennedy in the book um, because they, as you know, celebrities, had also obviously been through that. And it was some some really creepy foreshadowing to what even though the reader knew was coming was well what i would say and, and laura you can tell me if you agree with me so i was thinking that what uh school shootings or mass shootings are to today uh, assassinations were to us when we were growing up i mean okay. i'm i'm too young i didn't experience the john kennedy assassination when i was really young with bobby kennedy and martin luther king but i remember them yeah, me too. and then we got told at that instance we got told about the john kennedy assassination then you started learning about assassinations in general and then you look and there was later there was the assassination attempt on reagan there was an assassination attempt earlier on ford that year there was an assassination yeah. attempt on andy warhol there was the assassination of malcolm x and so it was, and and when I sort of, when I looked at the Kennedy primary run, which the book talks about, it was in the air. People thought, well, what, is Teddy going to be the third? If he, because the belief over the previous summer was he was going to run and he was going to win. 
and then would he be assassinated? So it was it it was what people thought about when they thought of a Kennedy. How could they not? You know, when when the third Kennedy was going to run for president and the first two's, you know, uh, lives ended. You made some comment in it, and I'm not going to quote it correctly, but you it was something about how the fact that he didn't have charisma saved him, and that really played into a lot about this theme of celebrity in the book and charisma and how dangerous that is and how much so how much other people project onto you if you have that kind of charisma. That's a big part of the book. And, and it's funny because in some ways I didn't, um, it, it's something that I learned in the course of writing it. But a lot, if you, if you read it all about John Lennon and listen to his words and words of others who are close to him, it was really sort of a, a prison often to be a celebrity of that level um, and kind of scary often. But I was, I was interested in the outsized emotions, the way in which people could resent a celebrity for a personal decision they made as though they had been betrayed that idea. And I, I sort of, one of the characters likens it to the feelings we have when we watch a movie and we get angry at a character or if we fall in love with a character. And that's, that's part of, 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 I thought um, w what that period was like, those people that hung, and we'd see them, because I lived five blocks away from the Dakota, those gangs of people outside the building waiting for him. And other celebrities, I had girls in my high school who knew where Barishnikov would walk his dogs, you know, and they'd make sure to see him. And, you know, just people people studied this. And, and you have uh, Anton, who's the protagonist, the son of Buddy Winter, who's a talk show host. Um you have him at, at one point meeting this young woman who seems really nice and cool until he finds out that she's just waiting for John Lennon to step out of the building and fall in love with her. Correct. You know? She's convinced it's going, it, 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 yeah, it, it, it's going to happen, Yeah, she says. So. I love this, this exchange, if I can just read a little bit, between um, it's, it's – so Anton's mother is working for Joan Kennedy and a, is a friend of hers. And um, so Anton and his mother um, are saying, um, they're talking about how the Boston Herald had run a front page story suggesting that Joan Kennedy had undergone a facelift. Which they did. They couldn't just say I looked nice, not and boost their circulation, I guess. It's depressing. It feels like they hate us sometimes. She took a deep breath and pursed her lips. Don't you think that strong feelings, I mean, really passionate ones for public figures are fake, I said? It was something I'd been thinking about. What do you mean, Joan said. It's fake when you love them, because if you've never met them, what are you loving? A role they played in a movie or on stage. And when you loathe a public figure, it's the same. Every great man in history was hated by someone, and most villains inspired devotion. Hitler had women who gave up their lives for him. And then Jack and Bobby had men hating them so much they killed them, she said. Exactly, I said. My mother shot me a disapproving look about where I'd steered the conversation. Um, anyway, I just, you know, I think that theme that goes through the whole book is so interesting that, um, you know, of, of celebrity and of projecting things onto celebrities and how, how essentially scary that is for them and weird it is for us. One of the things, though, that I that sort of struck me about a book, the book that I'd love for you to comment on is, so there is this kind of critique of celebrity and how we react to celebrities running through the book. But paradoxically, one of the great pleasures of reading the book is that you give us so much celebrity dish. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about that paradox a little. Well, so the, one of the thing, the qualities that, that, um, that Buddy possesses and that Anton possess 
is that famous people feel comfortable around them. So they don't make them. And the, the rule of thumb, and I've talked to people about the Dakota, and the idea is that celebrities don't get, don't get treated any differently. They're just neighbors there. They're your neighbors, and you don't make a big deal about it. And I think they both had that quality. The other thing I was thinking about, a talk show host, um, so part of the problem we talked about is when people feel that they have an intimate relationship with a celebrity and they don't have one. Well, the person who, who aids in that is the talk show host because the talk show host's job is to make celebrities seem human, to ask them the sorts of stories that once they're told, you feel like, oh my God, this is a friend of mine after you hear that. So there's that. And part of the challenge of the book was, first of all, I wanted to say something new and true about John. And so, and I think there are a couple things that I figured out about his last year that are in the book. And that way of, of, I needed, I needed not to have them exist simply as celebrities. They just had to be interesting people, uh, three-dimensional people with problems. Joan, I found a great deal of courage in Joan Kennedy. I found a lot of hurt. And I also think the more I looked into it, the more I thought she was the whole key to the 1980 election. You know, Had okay. Teddy treated her better, I think he likely would have won the primary and, and the presidency. It was his for the taking, and he treated her so poorly and was so uncomfortable around her. I think that was a big part of it. So I had to not just be, look at the glamour. I had to look at, at their strengths and failings in a way. And, and in that way, I felt like I had proximity to them as I was writing it, you know, in a way that, um, that I, I, I was concerned about doing, about, about creating them as, as people that you could know, you know, and not simply relying on the fact that they were celebrities. But what was interesting, I thought, is while you portrayed them as being really human, and, you know, having human failings and faults and whatever. In the end, they kind of ended up larger than life anyway. Like John Lennon, you know, he, you know, you have this wonderful scene where Anton takes him sailing and, and then it ends up being Anton who gets sick and John Lennon who kind of saves the day in the storm. True story, yeah. Really. And then, um, and then this sort of makes, gets John Lennon out of some stuck place where all of a sudden he has just this burst of creativity and so most people you know who, who survived that kind of thing wouldn't go on to write you know whatever the next album was i'm sure you know what it was double fantasy thank yeah. you <laughs> his last right yeah yeah and um and and likewise you know joan kennedy comes across as you know she should have run for president as i think anton's mother says at one point and buddy the talk show host as well um you know, he's, he's really funny. He writes jokes. And so all these people have these, you know, have these talents that are, that are kind of larger than life, even though you're portraying them as being, as being human, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. I, um, I mean, I think part of it is, is not to, I, I'm not as interested. I don't think Buddy is interested in people who are famous just because the Kim Kardashian kind of Donald Trump sort of you were famous because you're famous kind of way. And a lot right. of the people that he's interested originally become famous because they're remarkable, but they lose contact of that part of them that made them remarkable because suddenly they're just famous and people focus on the fame. And you know so many people when you meet people that, that look at you and your success as a writer and then they think like, I want that, but they don't want all the hard work and the, and the, and the, you know, the growing of the brain that it takes to do that. And so what Buddy's always interested in, and I guess all these people are, are, are actually, you know, once you get, once you stop looking at them like uh, animals in a zoo, they're, they can be remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. 
It was, um, this book is one of those books that the first time you read it, you feel like it's a guilty pleasure just because it's so much fun. I read it, I tore through it. I really did. So it was great to kind of reread it for today because then you really see the craft. It's so well crafted. And and I have to say, I think the thing I like most about the book is the dialogue. The dialogue, I, 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 I really, it was so sharp, I almost cut my fingers turning the pages. It was so, so good. And I'm wondering if you would just read a little scene with some of the dialogue so that we yeah, get to. a sense. You can just pick it randomly if you like. Anywhere you open it, the dialogue's good. All right. Well, this is a scene in which uh, Anton has been bussing tables at a place called the Park Tavern, and he's out after work with Ricky, who's a bartender, Manuel, a pantry cook, and two waitresses, Bronwyn and Janet. And they are talking about a birthday party held at the restaurant uh, for Sean and John, who had the same birthday. Um, and um, and then they're talking about Yoko. And Anton tends to stick up a little bit for both John and Yoko um, because he knows them as neighbors and he doesn't necessarily want to gossip. But this is a bit of dialogue. Remember that letter they wrote? The Lennons took out a full page of the New York Times explaining their years away from the limelight and that it didn't mean that they didn't love their public. They just needed some respectful distance. Not everyone liked the letter. You know what she said once, Janet said? She said that if she was a Jewish girl during the Holocaust, she would find a way to be Hitler's girlfriend, and after 10 days of sleeping with her, he'd do whatever she said. <laughs> Hitler comes, then succumbs, I said. <laughs> I made her laugh. It was a crazy boast, Yoko's, but I bought it, that she'd believe in her power through sex over famous men. I love that it's 10 days of f***ing, don't you, Ricky said. I'd really like to f*** John Lennon, Bronwyn said. Who wouldn't, <laughs> Manuel said. You want to f*** I would, Manuel said. I thought you liked young guys, Ricky said. I do, but for a beetle, I'd make an exception. I don't think he goes that way. I heard he did a few times. Did you hear that, Anton? I didn't, I said. Are we making you uncomfortable? We make everyone uncomfortable. I took a long draw of a joint that was going around. It felt like they were performing for me as if to say, aren't we crazy? Can you handle us? Are you getting high yet, Bronwyn said? Getting there. That's great. Thank you. Um, another thing that really interested me about the book is when the book starts, both uh, Buddy, the father, and Anton, the son, are recovering from different things. Anton had gone to Gabon in the Peace Corps and gotten malaria, and he was like six feet tall and 145 pounds, really sick. And then his father had basically had a nervous breakdown from stress and left his show, and so his his career was in smithereens, and it was kind of Anton's job in a way to help rebuild his father. And then part of what happens is the, in the book is that Anton has to sort of not only rebuild his father, but rebuild himself and come out from behind the shadow of his father. And it gets to the point where, you know, he sort of stops laughing at his father's jokes and his mother notices that he um, like leaves the room when his father is talking. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about that father-son dynamic. Well, thanks. Yeah, that that for me, my, one of the discoveries you make and and anybody who's written a book knows that, that you have these discoveries midway through the process out that this is what it is. And for me, the, the center of the book was this relationship between Anton and Buddy. And what I'm interested often, and anybody who's read my short fiction knows too, that I'm interested in that time when your kids, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, someone becomes a young adult 
and the parent ends up being in some ways a little more insecure, maybe even less mature in some way as this kid who is now sentient and has you know a little bit of wisdom and how uncomfortable that is for both parties that that fact that that you know for so long your parents are these sort of paragons of of rectitude and you know they do things the right way and then suddenly they show some vulnerability and for anton anton has has worked on the show and he writes helps buddy with his monologues you know helps him with some of the jokes and some of the questions he'll ask for the guests and buddy starts to rely on it and buddy realizes that that um, especially in, in his comeback that he's going to need anton and at some point, Anton realizes what a trap this is. You know, he's, um, his sibling, his sister especially, has warned him about that. But that, that becomes that, that idea. But he just says one time, you're, you're like the other side of me, the other half of me. And Anton suddenly feels terribly claustrophobic. Yeah. And, uh, but they, but then, then there's the whole thing of, of, you know, he realizes later on, he does, there's, there's certain ways in which he rejects his father. And in the long run, he, he really has misgivings about that, too. Now, you're a dad. Have you come across that moment with James where he's kind of become a little... Uh... You know, not yet because he's 11. But he, there, there have coming. been a couple times where I was stressed where he's come by and like said, how are you, dad? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know it's coming. So, yeah. so um, where were you when Lennon was shot? Do you remember? Were you in New York? I was at the uh, Spectrum in Philadelphia um, at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Oh wow! And when I we I got out, I learned you know with my one of my best friends, we learned that Lennon had been shot. But everybody knows that's a good question because everybody knows where they were. Yeah. And um uh and um and it is I mean it's it's not nine eleven in terms of the scope of it, but it's it's a huge moment. And it's funny you you brought up the Kennedys before, and they're in the book. And and one of the things that I think the book is about is the dreams of the sixties of. The, the, the icons of the 60s really are, you could argue, the Beatles and the Kennedys. Um, yeah. And the dream at the end of, of the 70s was of a Kennedy presidency and of the Beatles getting back together. I mean, there was so much talk even that summer of, of, of the, would they get back together. And there was a lot of, there was some movement. And the book has this whole theory about that. Um, Came close. Yes, yes. We won't and, give and, it away. Yes, yes. And, uh, and also there was a, a reason to hope for a Kennedy presidency, certainly that previous summer before that big, that terrible Roger Mudd interview, there was, there was every, you know, so, and the winter family intersect with, with both of those dreams. They, they take a, you know, so that's, that's a part of what the book is about ultimately. The book is also about New York and it's interesting because there's sort of this shiny, glamorous side to the celebrity world that they inhabit in the book. And then there's New York city itself, which, um, was pretty grimy. I lived in New York City in 1982, and um, it it was, you know, it was pretty grimy. I mean, you've talked about getting mugged. Tell us a little bit about New York in that era. It was tough. And one of the things is, yeah, I I would think back. I talked to my stepmother, and and she's like, oh, it wasn't so bad. But I, uh, the more I read and looked back at what uh, my neighborhood, the Upper West Side, I, I my memories were proven true. So I lived on 77th Street. It's in a lot of movies. I think when Harry met Sally, they walk right by. It's the south side of the Museum of Natural History. But when I was growing up, you know, back in the 70s, we had a welfare hotel um, on our block in which seven women were killed for uh, by a serial killer wow. for their appliances. And there was a juice bar that was in the basement of one place where junkies hung out until like we finally got rid of it until three in the morning. And you know, I got mugged pretty often um, uh, for my bus pass. I'd just like like eight or nine kids would surround me, and I'd have I'd make sure that I had money, not 
if I got mugged for when I got You mugged. always had to carry a 20 just yeah. to, yeah. 15 or something. Yeah. I have to have something. <laughs> and, uh, and it would just happen. And um, so my grandmother got thrown to the ground. They broke her arm. Wow. And my stepmother got held up at knife point. Um, but it also, the other thing, that the flip side of it is there was so much diversity. There was so many, you know, there were opera singers and actors and artists and lefty politicians and there were great bookstores and revival movie theaters and there was just a ton of life and um no chain stores and you know small businesses and bakeries and um cuban food and just different i mean just a lot yeah. of cool stuff it's very sanitized now yeah more sort of high-end clothing stores yeah and yeah it, it so so it, it was uh, you know, if you you can watch the movies to see what New York was like, then you know I always say just go watch Dog Day Afternoon you know, or watch <laughs> Death Wish or yeah, The Night Cowboy, or I mean, you see the grime of the city. But but there were pleasures in that too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the book has been getting terrific reviews. Just this week, it was an editor's choice in the New York Times, and which talked about how you had sprinkled beetle dust on on everyone who read it, which was really lovely. Um, so that it's it's doing really well. I mean, it's it's been getting great reviews everywhere. I want to just talk to you a little bit about um, being a writer. You're also a teacher. You you're a writing professor at uh, California College College of Arts. College of the Arts. College yeah. of the Arts. <clears throat> and you also are a huge cheerleader for every writer in in the Bay Area. I mean, you show up at events and you. You bring writers here. I mean, I had the pleasure of sitting next to Marlon James when you brought him in to speak. And I I always wonder, how do you manage to juggle um, this huge literary life you have as a teacher and, as, you know, a supporter and, you know, having a family and getting anything done? I mean, is that why this book took so long? <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Well, as you know, I mean, it, every, I'm much worse. Yeah, and well, no, you're, you're. I think you're great at meeting deadlines. Um, I think it, everything feeds everything else, and and I and actually, when you talk about that, I do. I'm sort of a go-to person um, for like the Commonwealth Club and a lot of bookstores to interview writers, and I love that um, sort of deep dive I do into someone's work. And that is some of my insights into Buddy, into, into writing about a talk show host, mm. is the pleasures he might have preparing for the show every day. So in a way, Andy Greer, one of our friends, um, I remember him saying that one of the things you should think about when you choose what book you're going to write is a kind of doppelganger existence. So rather than do, do, you know, mining your own story, what was a life that maybe if you had, in the next life you would live? And in a sense, part of me would have loved to have been a national talk show host in that way. <laughs> Um, but it is, I mean, I think uh, we all live in the Bay area, which is, it, it's tons of great bookstores and literary events. And I think the, the grotto is the perfect place where you become a literary citizen. And so you, you yeah. do. And, and, and I, I love to get behind my friend's books and then, um, and make those kind of connections. And I've benefited from, from being part of, you know, a part of a community. So everything that comes around, goes around or whatever it is, the, the more we put into it, the more we all get out of it. So. I think it really contributes to the Bay Area having a feeling of being more of a supportive literary community. I know that's certainly true at the Grotto, where it just doesn't feel competitive at all. And, you know, you don't feel that when you're at a New York literary party. No, no. And um, and it does feel inclusive, and it does feel like 
like yeah we're, we're everybody's looking out for everybody else cool that's great so um now what are you are you working on more stories are you working on another novel i'm gonna do uh, i'm gonna do a new book and 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 you and i were talking about before that i may we'll see i'd like to think about working on the screenplay for this book so depending on on uh, how things go who wouldn't want to go see this movie <laughs> i see right? it as a, i i definitely see it or as a movie. A, be, i think it'd be better as a series you know i'd love here <laughs> to just if you want to sort of picture everything i want to put in a plug for the audiobook because it's read by a guy named jim meskimen who happens to be the world's greatest impressionist right now he's been in parks and rec he's been in a ton of these shows oh, you know wow. oh, um, um, i think seinfeld he's a great uh, character actor but he has, you can go on YouTube and watch him do 10 presidential impressions in a minute, which is just incredible. But he does his Lennon is Lennon. It's eerie if you listen to it. Um, he's and and he has perfect Carson and Catherine Hepburn. And he's just remarkable. And, you know, I don't I wasn't thinking that I would have pleasure listening to my own audio book. <laughs> I, just, I just I, I could just see everything because he's so good. Oh, that's wonderful. So, I mean, one other thing, you know, I would just say is. There is some pleasure in in hearing the responses that people have, people like you and people like, you know, the different reviewers and, and different people. And a lot of it is that different people are taking different things from the book, coming at it from different angles. You know, some see the sort of father and son stuff. Some see the fame angle. Some people are just obsessed with John. The Toronto Star wrote a review, and I'm so happy you brought up Joan Kennedy because no one had brought up the Kennedys in any of the reviews. And the Toronto Star reviewer, that was, she said a few very nice things about the book, and then she went off for a, the whole rest of the review about Joan Kennedy. <laughs> and I was so pleased in a way, you know, because you, you, the book is about all these things to you when you write. And when someone just picks out a small part of it and describes it, it's great. You know, I'm not going to quibble with it, but it's nice when someone finds another angle on it. What do you think John Lennon would be up to if he were alive? I think he'd be, I, I think he was headed towards in, in, um, a, a terrific, well, extended, I think he'd have a complicated time, but I think an extended period of productivity. And I have no doubt that he would have gotten, that they would have gotten together again. I don't think they would have gotten together for an extended time, have the band back together, but they would have performed together. And I think they would have collaborated probably on songs again. I can't, I can't imagine that John and Paul wouldn't work together again. Yeah. Our loss. But great book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom, for coming by the grotto. We miss you here since you used to be here as a member all the time, but you're you're always a grotto member to us. Thank you. I love this place and, and it's it's great to be here and, and, and talking about books with you, Laura, who's, who I respect so much. Thank you.